You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week... You've got this passive, you've got this active quantitative tightening going on at the same time as interest rate hikes. This is uncharted waters for a lot of central banks around the world. Marcus Ashworth on some central banks amping up quantitative tightening and the perils associated with. Also... We don't have a lot of history at looking at what a recession in China might actually mean. Dan Moss on what China's surprise rate cut says about the world's second largest economy. First, though, to US markets digesting all of the above and prepping for Jackson Hole. But first, here's a clip of Stephen Major, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, recently. The market at the time was convinced a Fed pivot needed to be priced in at some point. Stephen Major had other ideas. The elegant outcome would be presumably to do less. And any central banker who's candid enough to admit it would say that. If it's so obvious we're going to make a policy mistake, let's not make the mistake. I want to bring in Jared Dillian. That was Stephen Major there, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. Is this what's happening now that we've seen the FOMC minutes? Do they bear out this analysis that the Fed will try to be elegant as opposed to overdoing it and underdoing it? Well, I think so far the rate increases have been inelegant and This is not an elegant central bank. They tend to overdo things in both directions. I mean, if you recall, we had a period of time that lasted eight or nine years where we had rates at zero. That was overdoing it in one direction, and now we're overdoing it in the other direction. Having said that, I don't think there's anyone at the Fed who thinks that rates are going to go above 4%. Mm. If you believe the dot plots that come out at the Fed meetings, the median dot is around 3.5% for Fed funds, maybe 3 and 3 quarters, 4%. But I think that's going to be about the terminus for the rate hikes. So you do think that we might see another 50 to 75 basis point increase? Oh, absolutely. I, I absolutely believe we're going to see that. I don't know if we'll get a 50 or 75. I don't know which it'll be in the September meeting. And we'll probably get one more rate hike after that. And then I think there's going to be a pause for a while and they're going to reevaluate. So consumer spending obviously held up. Walmart and Target reporting healthy quarters. Is this an economy that's booming? It's a strange sort of economy. It's booming in some ways. And it's very weak in other ways. I mean, if you look at the manufacturing surveys, the regional manufacturing surveys like Empire State, Richmond Fed, Dallas Fed, stuff like that, you're seeing very poor sentiment among manufacturers. But if you look at retail sales and some of the other metrics, like the consumer is actually doing pretty well. So we have a very distorted economy as a result of the measures that were put in place after the pandemic. 
And in fact, our Jonathan Levin pointed this out in a column as well, pointing to the fact that the problem isn't uniform and the Fed should avoid upsetting the whole apple cart. But at the same time, the Fed's instruments are pretty blunt, right? It either raises rates or it doesn't raise rates or raises them by less. Yeah, the Fed only has one tool. And I was actually thinking about that earlier today. The economy that we have now is very confusing to a lot of people. This recession or whatever it is, is unlike any recession we've ever experienced before. And the only tool that the Fed has to deal with this is raising or lowering the Fed funds rate. And that's pretty much all it is. Yeah. So what do they do? I mean, they do have QT, but that's a slightly separate thing. So what do they do about raising or lowering the Fed funds rate to try and have this glide path be as elegant as possible? Well, the problem is there are politics involved here. Inflation is the number one issue in the minds of voters going into the midterm. The Fed cannot be seen as being complacent or ineffectual on inflation. They have to be seen taking action. So it's very hard for Jerome Powell to make the case to pause here without being viewed as having done enough on inflation. So what will he say at Jackson Hole? Because this is a market that's continuously looking for more from this Federal Reserve, more explanation, more answers, more signal. I don't. No, I mean, forward guidance seems to be a thing of the past, but will he have anything to say? I think that forward guidance is drawing to a close. If the Fed is approaching a pivot or a pause or whatever you want to call it, and they're going to be data dependent, it's going to be really hard to give guidance out six, nine, 12 months as to what the Fed is going to do. And actually, I'm not a big fan of the forward guidance anyway, because it locks the Fed into a certain course of action. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. China, Jared, we had worrisome data out of China recently and then an actual interest rate cut this week. I mean, it was tiny, but it was a sign that the Chinese economy is in maybe a little bit of troubled waters. Does that impact your investment decisions here in the U.S. at all? Not really. I mean, the one thing I found interesting about the price action after the interest rate cut, you know, I've been in the markets for a long time, 21 years And usually the market goes down when China raises interest rates. And now it's going down when China lowers interest rates. Mm. So (laughs) I find that to be very unusual. Well, I suppose the fear is that China might actually experience a recession, one of the first in the lifetime of the modern Chinese economy. And that would have a blowback effect on the U.S. I mean, for sure. Absolutely. Are you a buyer or a seller at these levels, Jared? I'm actually 100% totally neutral. I've gone absolutely as neutral as I can possibly get. I think technically we're in the middle of a range. There are no clear signals. I'm actually not doing anything at all. And then the whole meme stock thing has come up again, the stock du jour. I don't know what you even call it these days. Will this continue on for the rest of our lifetime? Uh, It's probably going to continue on for longer than you think. I mean, what's going on here now, this isn't retail investors that are pushing up Bed Bath & Beyond. Mm. It's absolutely not retail investors. So these, this is hedge fund activity, and this is pro versus pro. I mean, basically, after these stocks declined a bit, a big short base built up. Somebody in the hedge fund world got the idea, maybe we can squeeze these shorts. It's absolutely what's happening here. The retail investors don't have cash. They don't have any ammo. They've lost a lot of money, and it's not them that's doing this. 
Don't forget, listeners, get in touch via Twitter at Bonnie Quinn or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments are always welcome. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's get now to the Inflation Reduction Act. A 1% tax on stock buybacks sounds small, but it might be deceptively mighty. So, Jared, you did the math, as did the government. By your accounts, it will raise, according to 2021 buybacks, about $8.5 billion in revenue. It's not nothing. Government calculations suggesting $74 billion over 10 years. What's the bigger picture here, though? Well, the bigger picture here is that what the government is trying to do is nudge CFOs into paying dividends instead of doing buybacks. And I think this has been a goal for a while. If you look at the dividend yield of the S&P, in 1990, it was 4%, and the dividend yield of the S&P today is 1.5%. And basically what happened was CFOs got smart, and they figured out that we had double taxation of that income, and they started doing returning cash to shareholders in a more efficient way. Mm. So how do we think of buybacks? Because on the one hand, if you think of it from a corporate point of view or an investor point of view, you have one opinion. On the other hand, if you're thinking in terms of redistribution of wealth, then you've got pension funds and retirement funds that like the buybacks, but people like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders that loathe buybacks because they don't do anything actually for a company's employees or consumers. So how are we meant to think of them? Well, you know, the way I think of it is, you know, buybacks kind of have a bad reputation. And just to be clear, I don't like buybacks either, kind of for different reasons. Mm. But if you pay dividends instead of buybacks, the managers and directors and officers are still going to get dividends, you know, because they own a lot of stock. So if you're returning cash to shareholders, you're necessarily returning cash to all shareholders, including the largest shareholders. The pension funds and and people like that. Yes, but also management. If a company is already spending plenty on investment, so the cash can't go there. So, so, so say a company decides not to do a buyback because of this tax. They're already spending plenty on investment. Boosting worker pay isn't an option. What's better then? Sit on more cash or do a buyback anyway, even with the 1% tax? Well, what's, what's better is to pay a dividend, even though they're double taxed. And the reason you want to do that is because, you know, if a, if a corporation doesn't have any projects that are worthy of investment, then they should return that cash to shareholders somehow. So if buybacks are being taxed, even at a small rate, um, you should return it in the form of dividends. Why? Well, I mean, it's better than it's better than keeping the cash at the corporate level. Like, basically, shareholders are better stewards of that capital than the corporation is. So if you if if you're a shareholder and you get a dividend, you can you can reinvest it in the stock, or you can reinvest it in other stocks, or you can simply spend it. All of that is better than the corporation pursuing an investment project, which isn't going to yield a high rate of return. Hmm. So, Jared, between this 1% tax on buybacks and the minimum 15% tax on corporations, do CEOs have a reason to breathe a sigh of relief or be a little annoyed by this Inflation Reduction Act? I mean, it could have been worse. Each, each of these could have been worse, right? 
Yeah, I think I think a little annoyed is probably a pretty good characterization. Um, you know, in the short term, the buyback tax is pretty small, almost insignificant. Uh, the problem is, is that now that it's in place, it'll for sure go up over time. So lower net effective tax rate areas such as healthcare, IT, they might see a hit to EPS in 2023. Would it cause you to change any investment decisions, Jared? Uh, me, you know, people have different philosophies on this. Um, you know, somebody like Warren Buffett pays a great deal of attention to tax. Mm. Uh, I actually don't. Uh, I make investment decisions sort of exclusive of tax considerations. Mm. Uh, you know, I look what's going to provide the best return, uh, maybe to my detriment. Okay. <laughs> Take that advice and heed it at your will. There are, you know, buyback companies, obviously, companies that, you know, like to do buybacks. There's an S&P 500 buyback index. There's obviously going to be a raft. Well, not obviously, but I mean, I presume there'll be a raft of buybacks between now and the end of the year before this takes effect. Does that ETF or do those companies outperform or underperform as a result? I think the outperformance of the buyback stocks is going to diminish over time. Mm. Um, I think the effect is going to be pretty minuscule at first. Uh, I think what you'll see happen is as the tax goes up, uh, the outperformance of buyback stocks versus the overall market is going to decrease. Jared Dillian there. China cut rates this week, a surprise cut. So in the last several days out of China, we've heard both a warning on inflation and a call from economists for stimulus. How then do we read the signals emanating from the world's second largest economy? I asked Dan Moss in Singapore. So, Dan, back in April, the PBOC implemented targeted policy tools as opposed to rate cuts. There were 23 measures and it targeted farmers and mortgage holders and all sorts of industries. Then this month, it implemented an actual interest rate cut. It was a small one, but it was one. What do these moves indicate about the economy and its growth this year? It tells you, Bonnie, there is growing alarm Hmm. among policymakers in Beijing about the trajectory of the Chinese economy. Not just that growth is slow, but it could be slow and continually slowing. We don't have a lot of history at looking at what a recession in China might actually mean. Hmm. How even to define it? And it might be worth asking ourselves, what does this look and feel like in China? Because if you go back for decades, you never had to encounter this question. Now, I'm not predicting one, but you know, China's economy has gone from a world-beating initial COVID recovery in the second half of 2020 to something that is you know, looking pretty sickly right now. Right. And this growth target of 5.5% is probably fantasy at this point. It's probably been fantasy for quite some time. But if there were to be negative growth, if there were to be contraction, would we ever hear about it? Yeah, we probably would. Uh, one of the most interesting things about China's slump induced by COVID at the start of 2020 was that there was no effort to gild the lily Mm. on the numbers. There was no effort to obfuscate for a long time. You've heard it. We've talked about it on your TV show sometimes. A myriad of guests have, oh, these numbers are man-made. They're massage. But give them credit when GDP contracted in the first quarter of 2020. There was no effort to hide that. GDP is now back to a point in China where after taking off when the ratings are basically order everyone back into factories and stores, it's now petering out again. Mm. So after three decades of almost uninterrupted growth, we now find ourselves looking at a very, very subpar economic performance for the 
second time in two years. Well, yeah, and what you said a moment ago, let's zoom in on it a bit further, because as you said, we don't have a traditional definition of what a recession in China looks like. We're so used to the idea of two quarters of negative growth plus a pronouncement by the NBER for us to know that we're in or have been in recession in the United States. Is there any policy on the part of the PBOC to define recession in China? Uh, No. (laughs) It's highly unlikely that the PBOC would be the first people you hear that from. Well, that's true, too, Uh, yes. You know, I mean, a distinction has to be made. China's central bank has done a lot of work in the past five to ten years on how they communicate with the public domestically and globally. But they are not an independent institution in the way we think of the Federal Reserve or the ECB or the BOE. Mm. Uh, They answer to the state council, which is the equivalent of the cabinet, which means they answer to the party. Now, they have a degree of operational autonomy, but big calls that have political implications, I doubt you're going to hear it from them. There just hasn't been that that kind of discussion, because if you look at the growth record since Deng Xiaoping began opening it up in the 1980s, well, we haven't really encountered this, have we? Yeah. Well, the other thing that was so fascinating was President Xi Jinping warning about the dangers of inflation because, you know, consumer prices came in this month up 2.7%, which granted, you know, is not nothing. But to us in the United States, 2.7% doesn't sound that bad. So it brings up several questions. How has We'd kill for it, wouldn't we? Well, almost, I'm sure somebody would. How has China been avoiding the scourge the rest of the world is facing? Many prices in China are controlled. But just to get back to your broader point, and it's not just President Xi, a PBOC report days before this rate cut uh, was breathing heavily about inflation. You know, we can't let our guard down. You know, we can't over-reduce. We can't print money, blah, 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 blah. Mm. So that really discouraged people from thinking that, you know, there's going to be a lot of monetary stimulus in the pipeline and maybe even none yeah. as far as interest rates are concerned. And then you got it, boom. And then 45 minutes afterwards, you had a string of data releases, which could only be described as subpar. Mm. Preceding that, you had very, very poor data on credit growth. Yes. So, yes, when you look at the data, sure, the data justify a cut. I mean, that's not the vibe they were sending. Yeah. I mean, obviously, COVID zero and its approach, people have talked about, you know, how difficult it is to operate an economy under those kinds of restrictions. But it's not just COVID zero either. There's obviously the tariffs question. There's obviously the consumer, the health of the consumer. You just mentioned credit growth and so on. So what are your thoughts on whether China inflation at 2.7 percent is a danger to the Chinese economy and the global economy? Well, if it got to 5%, they would be extremely concerned and there would be all sorts of direct policy responses regarding prices. But look, we're not at that point yet. A cause for concern? Yeah, a little bit. But they've clearly decided that growth is the first order concern. So inflation is now on the back burner. We've seen a big shift in the last few days. You know, it's interesting, Bonnie. There was a prominent story in a PBOC-aligned publication that cited a number of economists talking about an anticipation of further monetary stimulus for a PBOC-aligned newspaper to put it on the front page. That's not an accident. We have flipped here. It's all about supporting growth. There's this dual narrative, as there is in the United States. You need to fight inflation. We also need to support growth. So I guess the conundrum is there in China too. Just a word on politics, because there's always the potential for... 
a disruption. I, I don't want to characterize it beyond that, but it did seem like we were headed for a bit of a rapprochement between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. Suddenly the temperature cooled. And in fact, let's just have a listen to what Singapore's next prime minister told us recently. We are starting to see a series of decisions being taken by both countries that will lead us into more and more dangerous territory. If an accident were to happen today, the consequences may be more difficult to manage. So Dan, the Singapore Prime Minister-in-waiting is worried about it. Most of the world thinks about it from time to time. What are the options for the Biden administration? Well, I think we need to see what happens over the coming months. Right now, there still seems to be some petulance in terms of the sort of response to Nancy Pelosi's visit. There's a couple of opportunities for President Xi and President Biden to meet in November. One is at the G20 meeting in Jakarta, and the other is the APEC meeting in Bangkok. So, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, I don't know that a Taiwan Strait conflict as opposed to saber-rattling I don't know how that helps China's economic growth trajectory, nor the United States. Dan Moss. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Don't forget to reach out with thoughts, suggestions, opinions. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Now to QT, quantitative tightening or contraction of the Fed's balance sheet, withdrawing stimulus, decreasing the amount of liquidity in the economy. However you describe it, the Fed and also the Bank of England are about to do more of it, even as both central banks continue with their rate hike cycle. Marcus Ashworth says, beware. He joins us now. There is general tightening, Marcus, the Fed engineering tightening financial conditions. And then there is this specific tool we call quantitative tightening. So to begin with, brass tacks, what is it? (laughs) It's the reverse (laughs) of uh, quantitative easing in the sense instead of bond buying, they are not just bond selling, but also letting their holdings, which mature as they come up to uh, expiring, get repaid. They're not piling them back in. Up from now, they've been maintaining the stock of their total holding, close to $9 trillion for the Fed and nearly $1 trillion for the Bank of England. But there's also the flow element. They reverse the flow now. So the stock is going to stay quite high for some while, but it's going to come down by nearly $100 billion a month in the US and you know a bit less. Obviously, the UK is a much smaller economy, but still quite a pronounced effect as it comes at the same time that the central banks, as you mentioned earlier, are hiking interest rates. So it's a double impact. And they are now actively going to sell back into the market as well as just letting maturities run off. So you've got this passive, you've got this active quantitative tightening going on at the same time as interest rate hikes. Quite a lot of contracting to financial conditions. We just don't know whether or not the market, the banking system, liquidity, all these things could get a bit of a crunch. Let's hope not. As you say, it's uncharted territory. Now, this is a different tool to raising rates. How does the transmission mechanism work in this case? (laughs) <laughs> well, we're not really 100% sure. I mean, we put uh, some academic work gone into this, and, 
And really, you, you've not got a lot of clarity from the central banks. Obviously, some of the investment banks have done their own research into it. But, you know, at the moment, the, the clearest idea we got from Jay Powell is that uh, they expect to run off about a trillion in the first year. So if we're at around nine trillion now. You'll go down to eight and below. He only equates that to around a 25 basis point hike in interest rates, which is almost nothing when they're mm. hiking 75 basis points every meeting. So the point is, is, is he right? And, and the practical reality is we don't know. I mean, similarly, the Bank of England has got other measurements, and it's, it's quite weird. When they were quantitative easing, they thought the effect in equivalent interest rate terms was much, much more than they now believe it will be in the reverse. When they whack it in the reverse and they take tighten, they seem to think the effect will be hardly anything at all. I don't know why they think that, because I don't know how they can know that. Yeah, and various houses have their own ideas of what this is equivalent to in terms of a basis point rate hike. I've seen you know, many efforts at trying to model this out, but in terms of the transmission mechanism, we know that raising rates makes it more expensive to borrow, for example, so that dampens housing and so on. What does taking liquidity out of the system do? Well, it's more about making banks perhaps less keen to lend as much or certainly to offer leverage. So it's more about liquidity into the overall system. If you imagine quantitative easing, it's like building a massive climbing frame and you're hanging this balance sheet ever bigger and wider and your assets against liabilities. So you're, you're not really creating money until that money gets made into a proper loan by a bank. Mm. All that the Federal Reserve is doing is pumping money into the system and giving the banks lots of liquidity, hoping at some point the banks will use that and actually start lending out into the real economy, to corporates, what have you. If they don't, it just stays on balance sheets. But Take it back again. It has a psychological effect on corporate lenders. You know, do they want to offer as much as possible? And that's where the financial conditions index, should we say, is very important because if that starts tightening too much at the same time as you mentioned before, interest rates are going up, so that's naturally taking away loan demand. It could have, you know, it could have that, that wobble effect and, and tilt the economy a little bit harder into a slowdown. Uh, as I said, I'm sure they'll be very careful about it. They're thinking about it. They're watching it very carefully, but. They are pre-programmed to take away $95 billion a month. That's mostly in U.S. treasuries, but also in, uh, in mortgage-backed securities. So it's going to have a particularly knock-on effect into the housing market, I think. Right. And now the Fed is a little bit ahead of the BOE in this because it started QT in June, but it actually doubles next month to, as you say, $95 billion, $60 billion of treasuries, $35 billion of mortgage securities. Can the Bank of England learn anything from what it's seeing in terms of the American system, or is it too early to say? Well, I mean, they all learn a lot from each other. The point is, and the Bank of England actually were, were first. They stopped QE first. They stopped it at the end of last year. I think they should have stopped it well before. That's another argument. Mm. But anyway, the Fed was still adding until until April, I think. So, uh, um, and they started letting bonds mature, the Bank of England, in March. They had a big maturity there, um, which had some impact. We've got a few big more maturities coming up um, in recent weeks. But, as you quite rightly say, the Federal Reserve, a bit like with their interest rate hiking cycle, have started behind, but they've caught up and will massively overtake the Bank of England with the aggressiveness of what they're doing. They've got a much bigger balance sheet in lots of different ways, and, and perhaps what we really need to learn from the Fed is that they've done quantitative tightening twice before, 2013 under Bernanke, which went horribly wrong, and again in 2018 where they had to, so we say, stop and reverse under Jay Powell. So everyone's seen this movie before, perhaps in the US. We've yet to see it in the UK, but we are watching you guys very closely. Well, now, as you say, <laughs> I mean, 
This program, it's not really designed to stop and start, but obviously it does at times. It's because it runs into technical or market difficulties. So what should the market be watching for any kind of mishap this time around? Well, I mean, you don't want to have a scenario whereby obviously things like the pandemic, I mean, obviously that's a clear crisis. You know, obviously let's just make something up. A hedge fund goes down like long-term capital management did. Those types of crises, you know, probably quite easy to spot what's happening you could stop it, and I think they would stop it quite quickly. It would be evident if, you know, yields all of a sudden shot up or shot down in, in, in quite an extreme way. Bear in mind, we've got quite high volatility at the moment, so they're still going ahead with it. But I think the bar for them stopping will be pretty high, and as in a pretty uh, unpleasant crisis, but it will, you know, they clearly have the means and the, and the understanding to do so. Um, you know, what happened in 2013, the, ta- the taper tantrum, as it was known, at the time was quite a sort of market rejection of perhaps what the Fed was doing. This time around, the Fed have, 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 have laid it out very clearly months and months in advance. So I don't expect we'll get quite the same reaction. But, you know, the point is, is this is uncharted uncharted waters for a lot of, uh, you know, central banks around the world. Even, even the European Central Bank has stopped adding to their concentrated pile. They're a long way away from reducing it. But the point is, everyone's watching, waiting. Dollar liquidity is what keeps the world afloat. King dollar... You know, it's been so strong the last year and a half, two years, and it's you know, it's still something which is essentially the reserve currency of the, all the basically the entire world. So, reducing liquidity in dollars is probably a good thing if it's done carefully, but it just needs to be made sure it doesn't get too extreme. And there are desks at banks that are trying to figure out when this ends, right? And I've seen different scenarios. There are even sort of a range of scenarios at particular banks that this could end at the end of next year, but it could also end at the end of 2024. We we don't know, do we? Yeah, I think it, I think they'd want it to go longer than the for the next you know several years. I think I would say that the, the the Fed, like the Bank of England, doesn't want to get down to zero. They're never going to reduce back to where we were before the pandemic, probably. But they do want to get back to pre-pandemic levels. I would expect. Uh, I mean, balance sheets have shot up an, an awful lot, many trillion through the pandemic, much more you know than you would actually expect. It's a much bigger impact. The uh, um, pandemic response than even the, the, the global financial crisis. So in that context, I, I would certainly think, you know, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet now, as I said, is, is close to sort of $9 trillion. I, I, I would expect them to probably want to get back to sort of a level around $4 trillion, 4 to $5 trillion, which was where it, it took off in, um, and why did it take off in, in March 2020? You know, it went from just over $4 trillion to you know, more than double now. So I, I think they want to let it glide down maybe a trillion a year. Mm. We've been watching the yield curve, obviously, and its inversions. <laughs> this is the US yield curve I'm talking about. Does mm-hmm. this impact the yield curve at any point as we go along, given that even at $100 billion a month, it's kind of a tiny amount of liquidity in some ways? <laughs> well, I know it sounds ridiculous to say, but when you're talking about $9 trillion, you know, $2 trillion above yeah. the pre-pandemic trend for M2. What's that between friends, as they say? Um, I would say that the one impact people are perhaps not fully appreciating is that everyone thinks that the Fed obviously controls the front end with Fed funds and obviously the official rate. But, you know, depending on how they do it, what type of maturities they, they do sell back, they can, of course, influence your curve to a degree because, you know, by selling more longer-ended, uh, longer maturity bonds, that will have, by definition, push the yields up the long end, which could, in some senses, you know, Semi sort of um, disinvert the curve apart. So I think it's going to be one of these types of effects. It really hasn't impacted yet because for two reasons. One, as you said, they start off smaller and won't be going up to 95 billion a month until next month. 
But at the same time, there's also been, a, it's quite technical, this, but a mass amount of, of cash moving through the, the Treasury cash account, which is limited to the impact of that, that initial liquidity withdrawal. That'll stop. So I think the impact when it comes towards the end of this year could be a lot more than it currently is. Whether it's too much, we will have to wait and see. Bank of England starts selling gilts next month and obviously the Fed is upping its sales next month as well. So Marcus, thank you. Marcus Ashworth there. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. As always, we love to hear from you. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at bloomberg.net. And we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your preferred platform. We're produced, as always, by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.